Facebook has created an oversight board to review certain content moderation decisions. Few people knew that a couple weeks ago. Many more know it now, after the board's May 5th ruling on Facebook's decision to suspend Donald J. Trump from his Facebook and Instagram accounts. The board affirmed the initial suspension, but told Facebook that the suspension should not have been made indefinite. It called on Facebook to re-examine this, quote, arbitrary penalty and to apply an appropriate remedy within six months. What is the board? What is it meant to do? Is it likely to succeed? And what would success look like? We'll be talking about all that and more on this episode of the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. I'm pleased to be joined today by two members of the Oversight Board. Ronaldo Lemos is a professor at Rio de Janeiro State University Law School and a partner at Reno Penteado Law Firm in Brazil, a leading law firm in that country. He's an immensely accomplished lawyer and scholar of technology, intellectual property, media, and public policy. John Samples is a vice president at the Cato Institute. He founded and now directs Cato's Center for Representative Government, which studies freedom of speech, the First Amendment, and other aspects of American political institutions. With us also is favorite son of the show, Baron Soka. So let's just dive right into some of the, the hard questions that this decision, the Trump decision, raises. Um, Mark Zuckerberg was clearly hoping that the board would make hard calls thereby shielding Facebook, at least in theory, from some of the heat that comes with those calls. Uh, there's been a pretty widespread reaction. I, I think it's fair to say that the board kind of said, we're not going to do that, at least not if you don't give us clear guidance in advance. So, uh, gentlemen, how do you see your role? Uh, you know, if they made a Schoolhouse Rock video about you, uh, what would it say? So uh, I, I, as far as the role of the board goes, I think the crucial uh, elements there are its charter and its bylaws. And we have occasion to go back to those. And, and they're actually quite good in figuring out what you're trying to do, because you can see what the board was designed for. The word that appears the most and at the most crucial times uh, in those bylaws and in that charter is the word independent or independence. So it's fair to say that what is sought from us is a kind of judicial uh, outlook, a kind of independence from not just Facebook and its interests, but also I think from other factors. And I think arguably that independence both plays a couple of roles in this decision, which I, I think we might be able to talk about. Well, thank you. I mean, I. I appreciate the independence. I think it kind of seems to be putting the board in something of a bind based on the reactions I've seen to the decision so far, because to be helpful to Facebook, you need to be seen as having real teeth, real authority, real legitimacy. Uh, but the more that you have of that stuff, the more you resemble, at least in the popular understanding, a court. And actually, in the wake of this decision, I've seen kind of widespread across the political spectrum discomfort with the notion that a private company should have a, a court. So is that how you see yourselves? Do you see yourselves as akin to a court? Or are you uh, product advisors? Or uh, are you still figuring it out for yourself? I mean, how do you view your own role? 
Sure. Uh, that, that is a very important question, Corbin. Of course, uh, the comparisons uh, of the, the oversight board with the court, they are absolutely imperfect. So they do not describe exactly what the, the oversight board is about. So in, in my view, the way I, I like to see uh, the role of the board is uh, it's a new institutional design. So it's something that was created to tackle a different type of problem. It's a problem that is global. It's a problem that affects uh, people in uh, absolutely different jurisdictions uh, that live under uh, national laws that greatly differ from themselves. And uh, that institution was designed by a private company like Facebook because the, that company has a global reach and has to be dealing with these uh, problems in a daily basis. So in my view, uh, the Oversight Board is an institutional experiment, one that myself, John, and all the members and staff and uh, trustees are all invested in making successful. Because uh, the fact is, uh, the problems that we have right now, you don't really have uh, institutions that have evolved in order to deal with them. So the first attempt to do that, in my view, uh, it's a welcome uh, attempt, is precisely the creation of the, the oversight board by Facebook. So uh, that is, I think, uh, a more accurate description uh, of the, the work we've been doing rather than uh, a court. I think that that's, I prefer to, to think about it in these terms rather than a court. I would just add to that, uh, to clarify my earlier comments, I would say that our founding documents look forward to a judicial ethos while also agreeing with Ronaldo that it's not quite like a court. Uh, there's other parts to it, including, of course, that we're called upon to do policy recommendations, which uh, is very much a no-no for courts uh, in the United States and I believe elsewhere. Well, I really appreciate the experiment. I, I and I don't want to be mistaken for for um, being down on it. I really applaud the notion that Facebook is trying something different, uh, particularly as Baron and I talk about really often. You know, real courts, certainly in the United States, have have no authority under the First Amendment to be making granular content moderation decisions uh, to the um, to the level that you guys will. So I think that's great. Um, but I, it is interesting being an experiment and being new. It, it, I think a lot of us are still trying to, to figure that out and where it falls on that spectrum. So let me probe that a little bit more. I mean, one very important aspect of a judicial ethos, as you put it, is sort of consistency. And, you know, so, for example, in the Goebbels quote case, the board said that any rules which restrict freedom of expression need to be clear and precise and publicly accessible so that individuals can conduct themselves accordingly. Um, and because the uh, dangerous individuals and organizations community standard, although being published, didn't have the actual list of individuals out there, Facebook hadn't let you know, you know who is on that list, uh, the board said, well, it's not clear enough uh, so we reverse and we put the content back up. Uh, well, likewise, here we have the board saying that Facebook's imposition of an indefinite restriction is vague and uncertain. Uh, but Trump's account stays down pending remand. So, 
I was trying to figure that out as I read this. I mean, is there inconsistency there? It, it, I've heard it said that, well, that's kind of shows that there's a lot of politics in this. But what are your thoughts? Uh, so let me start with that. Uh, the, the, the point is, if you think about uh, content moderation decisions, w- one of the, the, the facts that all tech companies, including Facebook, have been criticized for is precisely because they take those decisions under closed doors, right? So you don't really get to know what is the reasoning. You don't really know what is uh, the appeal method for a decision that you disagree with. And more important than that, they do not generate something that courts do, which is a body of jurisprudence. And this is something that uh, the oversight board in my view, uh, correctly, has started to do. And in very clear terms, in very principled normative terms, for instance, uh, looking and applying to human rights uh, treaties and the freedom of speech uh, assurances that are embedded in the human rights uh, body of international laws, of which the United States and quite a few other countries are signatories and are part of those treaties. So it's part of national law also in the United States. And I think this is something that uh, changes uh, profoundly the way we think about content moderation decisions. So if you look into uh, the, the limited number of decisions that we've had so far, it's uh, something around 10 decisions you already see that they are pretty well-reasoned. They uh, give you uh, how the court reached those decisions. And of course, when we, you start to look uh, that along the years, because th- this particular oversight board was designed uh, to be here for a long time and not to be like a, something ephemeral or something that is going to go away uh, in a couple of months or a couple of years, Uh, One of the results will be precisely to have this articulated body of decisions that are analogous to the jurisprudence that a a court might produce. And all that in the public eye, responding uh, to all the principles of transparency, having the oversight board publishing a transparency report every year. And uh, absolutely, I think that is very helpful for anyone, any practitioner, any person that is worried about how these normative sets apply to content moderation. And I think that that is a helpful uh, achievement, in my view, and it changes completely how uh, content moderation goes from something that is done without any transparency or uh, under the public site to something that is made out in public through principles and norms. I'm hearing I'm hearing two different uh, approaches here. John notes that this really isn't like a court, and and it's not. It's not like a court in the U.S. because courts in the U.S. can't review the, the decision whether to carry speech ever. Period. End of story. At any level of detail. Uh, so we don't have that that kind of law here in the U.S. Uh, but Ronaldo, you 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 want this to be analogous to what courts do. You want a body of precedent that is like what courts do. So what 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 am I missing? Are you just talking about courts outside the U.S., or when you say analogous, do you mean something like what courts do, but not exactly the same thing? 
if I may, uh, what I think here is not uh, the, the, the functioning of a court is not the right analogy because courts are inherently national. So they respond to national laws. And what the oversight board is, is a decision-making body, right? One that is much better designed uh, to function basically under the principles of transparency, of setting up precedents, of being under the public uh, site uh, all the time. Uh, and that, in my view, is an improvement on how content moderation decisions are done uh, privately, but basically every company in the tech sector, including Facebook. So having that design with all the institutional guarantees, for instance, of independence that John just mentioned, I think it's a huge improvement. Uh, and just as John mentioned, like uh, the independence of the board is secured by uh, a number of institutional designs. Uh, we both, we cannot be fired by Facebook. In our decisions, we don't have to take into account maximizing shareholder profit on the part of Facebook, but precisely achieving a balance in which uh, the community standards of Facebook and the human rights law shall be uh, used as a sort of a normative principle in order to make those decisions. So uh, it's, it, of course, as John mentioned, there is a, an ethos of a court, but this is a decision-making body that has quite a few other differences from the way that a national court would work. So do you think it's actually, so you mentioned transparency, and I think that's definitely true. The board, if there's one thing I've looked at that it really has done a service, it's, it's drawing out more information about how Facebook makes its decisions. And I think you're right. That's, that's clearly a positive. I'm a little more skeptical about the notion that a consistent body of law or whatever you want to call it, a consistent body of decisions can be built over time. I mean, as I mentioned, uh, Goebbels quote, uh, rules are unclear, goes up. Uh, Trump suspension unclear stays down. Uh, we've had cases where uh, uh, threats to harm, you know, infidels uh, goes up because there wasn't imminent harm. But a video of Zwarte Piet goes down because uh, offensive comments can be cumulative. Um, so do you think that's a, a realistic goal that over time people will see these as consistent and reliable or is, is, uh, is con you know, you could run into a couple problems. It could be that content moderation is too context specific, or it could be that the path dependence of the board, it's hard to create a consistent body of law. So um, how do you feel about those challenges? Uh, I think we don't know exactly how hard it's going to be. My inclination would be to say uh, here in the early days that it is going to be difficult to create uh, an interpretive body of law and one that's applied over time, that there will probably be tensions within the decisions we make, and we'll have to try to resolve those as we go forward. Some of it will be, uh, look at the one of the examples you mentioned, or a couple of the examples, uh, will be just because different rules are in play. Uh, the Goebbels case is an interesting one because it, it didn't, there is a policy of, uh, that is the same as uh, ultimately the Trump uh, takedown, 
which was they have a policy against praising um, uh, dangerous people or organizations, including obviously people from the past. Uh, uh, Joseph Goebbels was propaganda minister, National Socialist Party. Uh, However, that case was not on all fours with Trump because it was actually an interesting case in which this man had um, put up a photo of Goebbels, but he did it uh, with the intention of of making a criticism of the, uh, in fact, Mr. Trump and Mr. Trump's administration. However, he did not say uh, that that's what he was doing. So you had this picture of uh, Mr. Ger- of Goebbels without a uh, any kind of explication, and there's a tendency in that case uh, from Facebook to assume that uh, that that is they just the, the real thing is they simply don't worry about hitting. They're so concerned to get rid of the dangerous. Uh, uh, speech, the dangerous uh, people and organizations, that they're not equipped to deal with the false positives. His was a false positive. He was trying to use it. And, and if you tell them, if you say very explicitly something like, oh, I'm putting Goebbels up because I think that's where we're going right now and everyone could be worried because you know what happened when Goebbels was propaganda minister, right? If you just make it deadly clear that I'm doing this, this is not reflecting well on Goebbels and I'm not advocating what he advocated. I'm advocating, I'm saying we're going down that path, people, something like that, then th- we would have never seen that case, right? Because that would have been within the rules. Uh, but in fact, there was, he wasn't trying to do the kind of harm that was concerned about of, uh, in the sense, praising people involved in acts uh, like National Socialism, but in this case, a riot going on in the Capitol during a constitutional, during the constitutionally provided for election of the chief executive officer. Well, uh, thank you for the, 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 the nuance. I mean, I think what's difficult for me is seeing sort of um, the rule of decision in some of these cases, because I had read both the Goebbels case and the, the Trump case is turning very much on, well, what do we do when Facebook doesn't set out its rules clearly enough? And frankly, I mean, that leads into another question I have, which is you've got um, the Facebook values. What is it like voice, authenticity, privacy, safety, um, dignity? I think I got them. Uh, you've got their community standards, which is a more detailed body of rules that incorporates the values. And you've got uh, international human rights standards. And so these are key things you're considering. Um, I have, I'm I'm not sure, maybe I'm missing something. I mean, which of those governs? I mean, if you see them as conflicting, are are you, do you see yourselves as bound by human rights standards or or do you expect that they just won't ever conflict? Um, Maybe I've just missed something in one of the decisions, but I've never seen something that makes clear uh, what, what ultimately governs. Well, I should just say about the Goebbels decision, because I failed to add one thing, which was we we ultimately ended up, uh, uh, we, you know, said Facebook couldn't take away his account because he hadn't done anything violating the rules. But we said to Facebook, the interpretation you made on it is correct. We said, you know, you really should make it clear to people that when they do things like post this kind of criticism, 
that they should make it clear that that's what they're doing. So otherwise, uh, we'll be looking at a violation. So that's where the transparency came in. And that was not a case of where uh, international rules or anything. It was just a simple misapplication of the community standards. And, and community standards themselves are one. There's a three, as you say, values, standards, and international human rights. In the Trump case, um, one of the important things, I think, not just about this case, but in general, is that international human rights norms and laws can act to be protective of free speech. Uh, Article 19 of the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, which the United States signed on to with a reservation in the 1990s, has a uh, something similar to the First Amendment uh, called Article 19, which is a very broad uh, statement of protection for freedom of speech. Um, it does look forward to, as does many fundamental rights in the United States, the possibility of constraints if and harm is one way to think about it but uh, you know if you go back to john stuart mill he the harm principle was not absolute it said you know there are limits harm to others and that turned out to be harm to other people's ba basic vital interest or you could say harm to other people's rights was a limitation that justified restricting liberty in this case of article 19 the idea is that there can be constraints on free freedom of speech. Uh, however, uh, these constraints have to involve uh, speech that involves the rights of others, right? And then to make sure that uh, you don't simply have a balancing test, uh, the international law has been interpreted to include a uh, a method of making sure that any restrictions on freedom of speech are, uh, you know, follow the norms of law, have legitimate aims under international law, and also are proportional and necessary. And so this is not simply a balancing test, but rather something well beyond that, where you, you just don't, uh, it's intended to preclude Facebook, who has signed on to these norms, or governments that have signed on to it, from willy-nilly saying, oh, that's harmful, uh, and I pick out this person and silence their speech. You have to go through a law-like process. So it's a, it's a constraint, and that's why we talked about it, in, and also the robot plan that's talked about in the case. There's also a, a similar guide that I think is puts restrictions and constraints on, not in this case, uh, a large uh, private owner of a forum for speech throughout um, the world. Well, I mean, I, I'm not going to be able to hide my skepticism when I say it. It actually, it, it sounds like a, a nested layering of several balancing tests. It, it's like a balancing test squared. So, I, I, I mean, I, I still have my question of, which governs at the end of the day, if it's Facebook community standards versus human rights norms, which one wins? And if if that's never a problem, like if it if it if you're going to be able to always make decisions without that ever happening, then it really looks like you're just making policy calls. I mean, it doesn't sound like it's really very rule based. If you never run into any kind of conflict that suggests that it, it's all just sort of a Rorschach test.
Sure, that, that's a very important question, Corbin. And it's interesting because it's one that appeared in, in the very first moments in which we, we had to approach uh, a decision. So in, in my particular view, uh, there is a commitment on the part of Facebook to apply human rights to the company as a business. So Facebook has publicly committed itself to apply, for instance, the United Nations guiding principles for business and human rights. And as, a, as part of that commitment, the, the entire set uh, of uh, free speech uh, rules and principles that are embedded in some of the, the, the treaties that John, for instance, mentioned and others, they are already something that uh, applies to every decision that uh, Facebook makes in terms of norms. So if there is a conflict between uh, Facebook's uh, community standards and human rights uh, principles, uh, human rights principles should prevail. And one of the tasks of the, the oversight board is precisely to make sure that that uh, happens. So in, your, in my particular view, and I think uh, for all those who subscribe to uh, protection of free speech, and I think all the board members are committed to that. Uh, human rights here are, are the guidelines under which uh, the community standards should be interpreted and applied. I see. The other po um, point I would make here uh, to, to add to this, it's, uh, it's often forgotten, is Facebook decided to do this. Well, there's the basic U.S. Uh, kind of framework, which is the First Amendment within the United States applies to government actions, to state actions. Uh, and so it doesn't apply to Facebook. Facebook is not a state actor. Uh, so Facebook has a great deal of leeway uh, and the Cato Institute and Tech Freedom has a great deal of leeway also to decide who speaks, who's on this podcast today, for example, with you guys uh, and so on. And, and so the, and what they've done, you know, this is uh, an exercise of consent of their freedom of choice, I think, is because they have emerged as a global entity and have a, you know, I think a great future as a global entity. They are thinking, well, we are a free speech, an organization based in voice, because that's what people do on the platform. But we go out beyond one country. And so what is it, what, what are those sort of more general rules that would be consistent with that, our emphasis on voice that goes beyond that one country? Uh, and that's the, for me, the big question is uh, these international human rights norms, can they serve to be a strong protector for freedom of speech? And I've indicated uh, a few minutes ago how I think it can be, uh, very uh, a strong protector that puts limits on both governments and uh, owners of these uh, private forums like Facebook. John, uh, of course, we, we, we would defend Facebook's right to, to decide how it's going to exercise its editorial discretion, just like we would defend the right of any uh, media outlet, whether it's traditional or, or new media, it's their decision to make. So on that level of analysis, I don't think there's any disagreement here. What, what I think I'm having a hard time getting my mind around is when the decision says something like Facebook has a responsibility both to allow political expression and to avoid serious risks to other human rights. 
I, I hear what you're both saying, that, that that's, that's an accurate paraphrase of the way that international human rights law uh, uh, understands this balancing test. Uh, but what that looks like in practice is, is essentially policymaking. It's, it's a weighing of, of competing interests and then an opinion as to how the interests come out in a particular case. And um, of course, there, there are tests sometimes in law where, where courts do that. But, um, but to us as American lawyers, that uh, certainly doesn't look like anything that courts would ever do in this country with respect to, to, to speech. And it's a little hard to understand, as, as Corbin asked, what, what is the, the legal rule that's being applied here? Because it really, it, it just, it looks like a weighing of competing policy interests, which again, might be what the European Court of Justice does or the International, International Human Rights Tribunals, but it's not something that we recognize as, uh, as a, ju a judicial function. So in the American context, uh, so I would emphasize here that, first of all, is that obviously these rules are not the exact same as the U.S. rules, right? Um, and I would also say that, uh, but, but there is the possibility of uh, analogs, of similarities and so on. That's why, you know, I, I think what I'm doing is pointing toward an analog to the First Amendment, which lawyers would do in the United States, which is Article 19. Um, and that, of course, the First Amendment itself has been interpreted over time. I guess you could call that legal construction, or you could call it policy making, to uh, think about where the constraints come, the limits come on freedom of speech, and most famously, of course, in questions of incitement. But as we all know, there's uh, several uh, limits on, on free speech. In the, the context of uh, international human rights norms, I would say the analogy is to a strict scrutiny uh, test inside the United States. That is, again, it's not the exact same thing, but there's you can see the similarities. It's not, uh, of course, uh, and this is where the difference comes, I think, between a simple balancing test. The balancing test is a kind of policy making, right? But I think these uh, norms beyond the borders can actually serve as putting a real burden on those who want to, uh, in the name of har preventing harms or other uh, matters, can, or protecting other people's rights, uh, have to uh, observe procedural uh, and proportionality itself in th these laws is not just what we think of as a balancing test, but also a search, I think, for in American terms, might be thought of as the least restrictive means. So I, in the end, I don't see uh, this as, for me, uh, maybe I'm not a lawyer, so we always have to take that into consideration. But for me, it, it seems that I, I, I feel like I'm in familiar legal territory, actually, uh, of interpreting the First Amendment, even though I acknowledge, of course, that these are not the same thing. What do you guys think of the fact that the opinions are anonymous? I mean, is that limiting? Um, I, I would think it kind of cramps the ability to write uh, like an insightful concurrence or or like a passionate dissent if you think something's gone very wrong. Um, but uh, do you have feelings on that so far? 
I'd like to see what Ronaldo thinks about that. I have a <laughs> definite view. Sure. Uh, I think like uh, the, the views, what is important in the way that they are basically uh, described in every decision that we make is that if there is a dissent, that dissent is very explicitly uh, basically spelled out in the text uh, of the decision. So in every decision that the, the board has made so far, if there is any uh, member of the panel that basically has a, a minority position, that position is very clearly uh, set out. The, the only thing that we, we do, we do not reveal uh, the names of the people in specific panels for a number of reasons, including uh, safety reasons, uh, independence reasons, protecting the members from being lobbied uh, in those decisions, uh, among others. But the important thing is the, the way that the process of the oversight board is uh, designed, it implies that uh, every board member has the opportunity to basically uh, concur uh, with the decision that has been made. So every decision is actually published on behalf of the, the board as a role and not as individual members or individual uh, decision makers that have basically subscribed those decisions. And I think that they're, those rules, they, they actually make a lot of sense if you think about the, the role of, uh, that the board uh, is expected to fulfill. So I would add to that, I agree with all of that. I would add, I think it really is a very helpful uh, toward the deliberation about these matters. Uh, in the sense that people who are deliberating at the panel level or the board level uh, can have a sense that they can say things, can explore ideas and so on, and then be free of uh, everyone knowing what they're doing, right? There's also the questions like, you know, you do feel answerable to people you know, perhaps to uh, political groups or whatever. But none of that matters because no one's going to know who said what and who was thinking what. And I think it just really opens up a very powerfully a, a good way of uh, deliberating. Um, so I think that and the security concerns should not be uh, un, uh, should not be underestimated. Also, uh, and you know, the other thing is even if there aren't any, you don't want people who have legitimate reasons to think there might be to feel like they should be thinking about that sort of thing when you're making these decisions. Uh, we do have gen general disclosure. Everyone knows who's on the board, but not who's making the decisions. See, you, you use the phrase free of people knowing what you're doing. I mean, with a, such a young institution, I, I kind of I, I can follow you for now. But um, and and as we've discussed, it's kind of a step up transparency wise from just having it be in a black box at the company. But I mean, over time, um, free of people knowing what you're doing, like who who do you hold accountable for a bad decision? I mean, is it everyone on the board? Is it Facebook as a whole? If if you guys are a success, to put it another way, wouldn't that then recommend having non anonymous decisions? Because if you end up having the kind of power, you, you keep saying you need to be independent. Well, with that independence, that, that means you're powerful, which would then mean that you need to be accountable. So would that be a long-term aspiration to shift toward 
signed opinions? Well, I do think the board as a whole, as a corporate entity, and the people that work on these decisions will be held accountable in the in a following sense, in a very in a somewhat similar way to a, a court, which is that uh, you know this, the, these words are published, the arguments are out there, and there's going to be a growing number of them over time. We can't just do things and issue decisions. And, you know, the people that are on this are serious people. And if serious arguments by people that are admired, great scholars and all of that, I know, I I believe everyone on this board is going to say valid criticism is going to be the most effective way. Uh, uh, You know, I keep coming back and think about uh, a lot about uh, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts uh, in Sibelius. There was a real kind of political effort uh, that was a, that had a content to it. It was a, he, arguments were made about the nature of the court and what would happen to the court if one decision or another was made in that case. Uh, I don't think this institution is ready for that kind being dropped into that kind of political uh, uh, pressure cooker. Uh, but you're right. There may become a day when we're we do have to become settled and sort of grow on everybody and be accepted. That day may come, and uh, we may may make sense to change that. I I appreciate that, and that's a candid answer. I mean, one thing I have in my head, and and this may make you guys cringe. This was my reaction: is that the decisions so far to the board have been about difficult content moderation choices. And at the end of the day, the Trump case was not a difficult content moderation choice. It was a difficult political choice. And what I see you guys doing so far is being perfectly willing to make, to have a take at least, to make a ruling on the hard content moderation choices. And I read the Trump decision as we are not yet going to make the hard political choices um, and uh, so I don't mean to say that you're saying that at all, but that—that uh, that was my feeling as I saw it. Sorry, Baron, go ahead. Uh, well, you also don't have a security detail like the Capitol Police to guard you. So yeah, this is uh, this is a real concern. I mean, given that what we're talking about is the moderation of people who are inciting violence against their political perceived political enemies, it's not unreasonable to me that absent a very large institution to protect each of you and your homes and your families as you are scattered across the world, that uh, that you take some measure to anonymize your decisions. Um, If I could shift gears, because Ronaldo, I'm I'm so thankful you came on. And um, obviously the Trump decision is is huge in the news uh, and was bound to be a big part of our topic. But I, I, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, Facebook and Brazil, which is a topic I know zero about, you know, uh, what is Facebook standing in Brazil? Uh, I know that uh, President Bolsonaro's page has, I, I looked, it's like 14 million followers. Um, could you tell us about sort of what the company, how it's seen uh, in, in your homeland and, and what issues uh, attach to it there? Absolutely. Uh, so uh, as with many other countries and many other large democracies, which is the case of Brazil. Uh, Social media, including Facebook, play a a fundamental role uh, to the public debate in the country. 
So as you can imagine, uh, in the past uh, six years or even more, uh, the public polit political debate in Brazil has been uh, a real uh, a vigorous one, one that is uh, full of controversy, uh, of very difficult uh, uh, speech uh, claims and uh, political uh, clashes. And uh, I, for myself, I I've been working with the issue of protecting free speech for, for such a long time. So uh, before joining the board, one of the, the key roles that I, I played was building Brazil's internet law, uh, which is a law that protects uh, free speech uh, very strongly in the context of Brazil and even prevents, uh, for instance, any sort of interference from the part of the federal government uh, in speech different from countries uh, in the developing world like uh, Turkey or others that in which the, the federal government does have some uh, scrutiny over a speech, the Brazilian law basically prevents that. So uh, a lot of the issues that you see happening in the United States uh, happen in Brazil too, uh, especially because uh, some of those are, are global issues. And what you can expect and what we, we, we do hope is going to happen is that, for instance, uh, with the the decision that the, the oversight board made about uh, the Trump case, uh, we certainly expect that Facebook will come up with uh, clear rules in order to decide uh, similar cases in the future. And of course, that might have an implication for Brazil and, and any other countries in which Facebook has a, a strong presence in the public debate as well. Well, thank you. Um, so far, uh, you know, a lot of people, the, their only exposure to the board so far has been the Trump decision, which I think is a little unfair. Um, if you read through your your decision, I, I almost say like case law, and we're still figuring that your decisions so far, they're actually quite speech protective. Um, and I would I would actually, you know, to the people on the American right who are up in arms, um, they might do well to read some of these other decisions and see how often you guys reverse takedowns. What I'm curious, though, about is the board was just empowered to hear appeals of uh, leave ups, you know, third party users who are going to you and basically asking for speech suppression. And uh, is it safe to assume that a large number of reversals of takedowns implies that you will have a lot of affirmances of leave ups, or do you? How do you see the landscape shifting? I mean, are 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 how safe should I feel from the decisions so far that the board will remain highly speech protective? Would be one way to put it. So, uh, it's not an answer that can be given in general because context will matter in every case. Um, and you would think though, uh, and I guess I would assume this, that there, there would be a symmetry, right? Which is that uh, the same kind of standards would be applied both to uh, overturning takedowns as well as affirming or overturning uh, leave, leave ups. Now, Psychologically, I personally have been fairly clear in public that for me, I think uh, being part of a, a takedown that wasn't otherwise going to happen is going to, going to be tough. I mean, my uh, 
throughout my life, my general inclination has been a strong presumption that things, as it were, should stay up, whether online or in the public forum. But I, you know, I would note this symmetry, as long as you're applying the same standards, it could be that they make mistakes about leaving things up. Um, and if so, and if we're doing our job right, uh, it's certainly plausible uh, that we will ask them to or decide that they have to take something down even though they left it up. Uh, so my kind of emotional uh, or inclination here is really something that should be remedied for me as by being careful to apply the same standards to both cases. Uh, how would you respond to allegations that the board is skewed to what some on the American right have called the globalist left? Uh, and, and second, what do you think about the idea that other companies might refer their content moderation decisions to the board? Uh, first uh, point is uh, I'm a scholar from Brazil. So definitely these political terms is something that uh, I think is part of the United States uh, political debate. And when I look at the, the, the composition of the board and who our colleagues are, I think this is uh, absolutely uh, uh, an effort to try to politicize uh, the role of the board. So I, I don't really think that uh, actually represents what the board is and what the board goal is and what the members of the board are. So I think that's a, an important point. And the second uh, point is, if the, the oversight board succeeds, uh, I really think uh, other companies might look into the, this uh, success example to actually improve the ways that they deal with uh, content moderation. And of course, uh, we don't have any plans uh, right now. It's a brand new institution. But in the future, uh, maybe, depending on the way that we do our work, and that is another reason for us to do a, a good job in what we do in the oversight board, other companies might want uh, to participate in this effort that Facebook created. But as I said, in, in, for the time being, this is an absolutely premature uh, conversation. And actually, it's another reason for us to keep doing uh, a job that is transparent and uh, under the public sight and responsive to the concerns of the uh, largest numbers of stakeholders. I know at this time, for a variety of reasons, that there's a great, uh, and it's across political parties in some respects, there's a pullback from the openings we saw. Uh, to me, the question is really not so much nationalism versus cosmopolitanism as it is the things I care about, which are I would, and I think uh, you would agree, uh, are the ideas of, broadly speaking, liberalism, uh, of classical liberalism, of the ideal of the individual, of protections from coercion, and you know, of the individual taking responsibility and having the ability to, to control their lives, to make fundamental decisions about their lives, and the responsibility to seek out and think about things. And these, these kind of enlightenment ideas that now for just bad reasons, I think, seem so much under attack. Uh, those are the important things and, uh, here, not uh, the question of, and I think cosmopolitanism is certainly consistent with that because um, 
you know, people are people. It's uh, the liberalism was always a claim about people in general, not about some people. Uh, and so the question for me about my colleagues is, do they share those liberal ideas? Do they want to ideas like above all freedom of speech and freedom of thought? Right. And I believe they do. I believe they do. They're an impressive bunch. And that's the crucial question. I do know that there's uh, political uh, questions going on and so on. But uh, us versus them is not the liberal idea. It's just not. And then on the question of other companies, um, that's certainly been talked about. The only concern I would have is I want to, I would like to see over time uh, uh, a diversity of content moderation principles and rules. I think over time, uh, that will be the best. We don't, I wouldn't, do not want to see a concentration uh, uh, and sort of everyone adopting the rules, even if they're rules that I have played a role in interpreting and deciding about. I, I think, again, these, the notion of liberalism, you want people to have different ways to live, different places and different uh, platforms to go to and interact with other people under different rules. People are not the same, they're different. And that's best for the, the global, what will become a global conversation. So. I'm wary about that. It's way early in the game. So I'm not saying that that threat is going to happen, but it could. And, and if it did, does also, there'll be a government role there, which, uh, as you know, we all are justly skeptical of. Well, as we uh, draw to a close, you know, I think it's fair to say I've, I've asked some hard questions and put your guys' feet to the fire. Um, but I, 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 as I said at the outset, I think it's great that Facebook is trying something um, to experiment. Uh, you know, as I've written, uh, I, I don't necessarily blame Mark Zuckerberg for wanting to try, you know, something, anything. Um, so I, uh, in closing, I, I really just wanted to welcome you both to give a bit on why did you agree to serve on the board and what are your aspirations here? Like, where do you see this going over the next five years, say? Well, uh, from my side, uh, as I mentioned uh, in the, the previous answer, uh, I've been working with the issues of free speech for such a long time. Before joining the board, I, I served in some of Brazil's congressional bodies that were actually created by the Brazilian constitution. So Br Brazil has an interesting history of free speech because the, the country lived under a military dictatorship from 1964 until 1988. So when the country redemocratized in 1988, the Brazilian constitution built uh, a series of uh, safeguards and also checks and balances to make sure that Brazil would never fall again under the trap of censorship. So that has been a, a significant uh, portion of my life. I, I certainly benefited a lot from Brazil redemocratizing. I, I, I grew up a portion of it under a dictatorship. And uh, when I was in my teenage years, the country redemocratized. And that, of course, was instrumental for everything that I do. So uh, I, for myself, uh, think that the Oversight Board uh, was built with similar concerns in mind. I don't think it's uh, going to go away anytime soon. I think uh, uh, we are all invested in, in the long run. 
And uh, I think one of the things that I, I share with my colleagues is that free speech is uh, one of our core values and one that we take very seriously. And, and I think that is instrumental for, for the oversight board to succeed. So that, that is a little bit of how it motivates me to be in the position that I am right now. So I've worked in, like Ronaldo, I've worked in free speech. I, I thought, started thinking rather late in the day uh, that, you know, this is online is where it's at. And as Ronaldo mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, uh, it's an opportunity to be part of a new institution uh, that will be working and, and be really the hope for free speech. Um, there is something that I, in the last couple of months that I've come to think that I, actually is quite exciting, which is, you know, I worked in the United States and in the United States, I always had the First Amendment and Barron knows this too. We always have the First Amendment to our back. We have all those decisions. We have that ringing dissents initially, and then uh, we have majority opinions behind us. Uh, th this is a challenge because we're going out beyond the purview of uh, the First Amendment and American culture. But I think it's a great thing because, and it's an exciting thing because we're going to other, you know, we and colleagues from other countries are going to have to be considering these things. Yes, according to international human rights norms, but free speech has to make its own case. It can't rely on authority. It can't rely on the world. You know, we live in this uh, country governed by a certain constitution. No, we're throughout the world. And you know what? I think that's great because I think free speech can win that argument. I think it won the argument in the United States. It can win the uh, argument other places, but it's got to go back. You know, this is like John Stuart Mill. Great thing about free speech, you have to go back and remember what your argument was and what the problems with the other arguments were. Well, this is an entire situation like that where we're going out and uh, on the back of this public forum, which is a great thing in itself too, we're remembering why free speech is not because America likes it or the United States likes it or it's in the First Amendment. None of that, right? The answer is because it's the best policy in countries governed by the people. That's the answer. And we got to make that argument, but that's a really exciting time. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Really appreciate your time. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the Tech Policy Podcast. Till next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.